0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsodixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Ross Noderft, Nordur- Senior Director of Cybersecurity Services at Venable LLP. Alexander Botting, senior director of international cybersecurity services at venable LLP and Amy Mon international policy specialist at the US Department of Commerce National Institute of Standards and Technology applied cybersecurity division we will discuss their work on cybersecurity risk management so uh, Ross Alex Amy welcome to the to the podcast
1: thanks for having us home
2: excited to be here oh, thank you
0: so for the purpose of today's show, I, I thought the best way to begin would be for each of you to briefly introduce yourselves and just kind of say a little something about the kind of work you do in the cybersecurity area.
3: Thanks again for having us. And my name's Amy Mon and I work in the Applied Cybersecurity Division of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. And a lot of my focus is around our international engagement for our various cybersecurity and privacy resources. One of my main areas of focus is our cybersecurity framework, which was developed collaboratively with government and industry and international partners as a tool for managing cybersecurity risk that we've seen used throughout the world, adapted and translated. And it's also an approach that we've brought into various standards organizations. So I help with our engagement around those various types of things and appreciate the chance to be here. Thank you.
1: Yeah, and from the uh, private sector side, um, very similar to Amy, um, my my role is um, to, as we look across the landscape of cybersecurity uh, policy developments internationally, um, to try and ensure that there's some level of cohesion uh, in terms of the approaches that governments will take as well we'll go into um there are a number of challenges with cyber security um not least uh having active adversaries that are um uh trying to make life very difficult for you um the last thing we want is to layer additional difficulties on top of one another so um as we See and identify policy best practices. Um, it's very important that we get the message out globally, and try and ensure some consistent adoption there to make life that little bit easier um, on on the private sector as as they seek to deal with uh, a pretty significant challenge.
2: My name is Ross Noderft. I focus primarily on the domestic policy arena, and I also do some some more operational risk management work. For some of our clients over here at Venable, so it's it's interesting how we're set up as a as a group. Um, I have uh, background and experience in the government, doing some policy writing as well as some implementation uh, with federal departments and agencies. So I, I help a lot of our our clients um, as they build out their their cybersecurity risk measures practices. Policies, uh, And then we do some testing. And then if if and when something happens, we're we're there to help walk them through kind of how to how to respond and recover from from some of those incidents. Um, Additionally, we do some work uh, with companies that are cybersecurity or digital identity or technology companies that are looking to partner with uh, some federal or state and local public sector entities to to support and solve some of the major problems they have. So we help, we help kind of bridge those gaps and make sure that they, the companies are tracking the requirements that are coming out of the government so that they can provide the best solutions possible.
0: So this conversation struck me as especially timely because cybersecurity issues are so much in, in the news right now with concerns about both like attacks on governments and attacks on private companies and so on. Um, From a kind of a big picture perspective, how aware do you think people are of the full scope of the current cybersecurity kind of landscape and and problems associated with it? And are these new or kind of increasing problems, or are we just starting to see the kind of efflorescence of problems that have been out there festering for a long time?
1: I think in terms of public consciousness – the the past few months past few weeks have been a bit of a watershed moment i think um uh the fact that we saw references to ransomware in the g7 communique which came out 2 days ago that's that's huge um that's uh a forum in which cybersecurity you know may occasionally get a reference but a specific paragraph dedicated to cooperation in tackling ransomware um is indicative of Um, how much it really has risen to become a key political issue at the moment. Now, if you talk to experts within industry, um, you will, depending on their level of cynicism, um, you will see different perspectives in terms of whether that is going to lead to actions that will actually change the landscape on the back end. Um, I think from many folks who've been in the industry for a while, there's a feeling that yeah, we've been in the news before, and uh, many of those same challenges we faced back then, we we still face today. There's a piece of that that's inevitable with cybersecurity. Um, the uh, the the constant cycle of is one in which you have adversaries who are investing to um, enhance their own capabilities, and you are. Uh, seeking to enhance your defenses to respond to that. So um, even if we were to take a great series of steps right now, um, the challenge is not going to disappear. But I do think we have a particular window at the moment um, to uh, seize upon the enhanced public awareness um, to ensure that we actually do take some tangible steps to make it more difficult, um, particularly in the era of ransomware, since it's it's front and center. But um, more generally, with cybersecurity risk management,
2: I'd add. I think one of the unique. So you're talking to folks who have been looking at this for decade plus right now. So for us, it's it's not new. It's just more more widely talked about. But I think part of the reason that it is being talked about a little bit more to, to further push on Alex's point is the convergence between the physical and digital impacts, right? We have had a shift uh, and a wave. You know, you can look at COVID as one of the pushes that got us closer to a more digitized way of living and doing business. There's a, there's a lot that has gotten us over the past 10, 12, 15 years in a more digital environment. And now, Ransomware is impacting everything. I mean, the ties between the the IoT devices at hospitals, the pipeline and the the infrastructure there, all of that is causing people to actually feel real world impacts when there is a cyber specific attack, like a ransomware attack on a pipeline. So that's, I think, why we're, we're seeing it a little bit more in the news today.
3: And just to add on to that, I had mentioned one of our tools that we engage on is our cybersecurity framework, which was developed back after a presidential executive order asked with NIST, which is a non-regulatory agency to work with other government agencies and the private sector, academia and international partners to develop guidance, which at the time was more focused on managing cybersecurity risk to critical infrastructure, being very mindful of what Ross just mentioned, that as you have more convergence of cyber and physical as more things are put online, there's definitely those new vulnerabilities and risks that have to be managed, which is what the cybersecurity framework was designed to do. It's a flexible approach, being mindful that there are differences across critical infrastructures. There can be differences between a healthcare device or pacemaker, something that's connected versus a Fitbit versus the electric grid. So it's really an approach to look at all of those different kinds of risks to manage. And we have been updating it throughout the years. We have our most recent version that came out in 2018, but understanding that things keep changing. We see all these things in the news. There are definitely new problems and risks out there to take into account, which is why we always are looking to refine and improve and update these documents and have those conversations with stakeholders so we can see what these various problems are and how we can adjust our tools accordingly.
0: So I know that all of you are collaborating on a series of programs addressing a range of cybersecurity-related Issues. I wonder if you could talk about the nature of the collaboration and the programming that you're presenting, and sort of what your goals are in putting on these events.
2: Let me let me back up and talk about where we're coming. Alex and I are coming from. So yes, we work at, at Venable, um, but one of our one of our clients that we do a lot and a lot of work with and through is the Center for Cybersecurity Policy uh, Policy for Policy and Law. So the center. Is a 501c6 organization functions uh, akin to a, a think tank, and its focus and goals are to to really drive the conversation forward, and really and provide that bridge and that that space to have the conversation between people who are operating across critical infrastructure sectors and different industry groups who are focused on um, cybersecurity every day, and then uh, the the government entities that are that are responsible for whether it's regulation. Or um, coming up with the standards in, in this case, and, and, and creating an environment for good, smart policy in what has traditionally been a greenfield for policy development. This series is builds on the work that NIST has done to date um, around the cybersecurity framework and around risk management for cybersecurity, and it is a continuation of their traditional, frankly, that they they've held conferences uh annual conferences focused on risk management two-day events um really pulling multiple threads of discussion together back when in-person conferences were a thing about six months ago we started chatting with with uh, the folks in NIST and saying hey guys you know the conversations are are still happening just in a virtualized environment is there a way we can help you guys support the goals that you had traditionally in the risk management conference and and drive some of the the conversations forward and they said yep great Let's come up with a series. So we started collaborating through the center with NIST to to develop this four-part series. So the first one was international, which I think Amy and and Alice can tell you a little bit about. And then the next one that we're going to be focused on is around supply chain risk management, which is pretty um, topical given the things that have been happening in the news, as well as the recent executive order that was just released.
3: Thanks, Ross. And at NIST, we do appreciate this chance to collaborate and put on this series. As Ross mentioned, we typically had been able to do this in person and look forward to the days when we're able to do so again. But it's been very helpful for us, even in the current environment, to have these types of virtual discussions. Since, as I noted, part of our approach is really convening stakeholders, getting their input on these various cybersecurity issues that we see. And all of that input really helps us as we develop these standards and guidelines, which I noted our federal government does have to use much of our work, but it does remain voluntary for industry. But Having this chance to have these conversations and get this input and help the, those voices be reflected in this guidance has really helped us in seeing some uptake and use within industry and the private sector, which was helpful for us as we learn from how others have implemented and used our various standards and guidelines. So we're hoping this series is another opportunity to continue these discussions and look at these issues. That helps us as we continue in our role developing this guidance. And as noted, it was very helpful having that international discussion looking at some of the tools NIST has made available. I said we've been taking some of our approaches to standards development bodies and have some documents available coming out of these organizations like ISO, the International Organization for Standardization, in conjunction with IEC, their areas. So hearing how others are looking at and using these tools helps us and very much looking forward to our continued discussions in the upcoming series. I
1: think we had somewhere in in the range of about Uh, folks from 70 countries participated in the, um, the last event and, and speakers from the UK and, and Ireland and, um, and the U S government as well. And I think that's really important for where we are right now. Um, a lot, part of what comes with the increased public consciousness is governments feeling they have to do something about it. Um, which is great. That's, um, you know, that's the energy on which change can come about, um, but as you see, the UK government come forward with a, a, a public consultation around supply chains. The US has a whole raft of, of things coming down the pike. We've got, um, you know, Singapore, Japan, others looking at this as well. There's this big picture of like how do we manage this and direct it in a way that we're all kind of rowing in the same direction? Um, so it's great to have that level of international participation. And uh, if any of your listeners didn't, didn't catch it, we can uh, perhaps put up a link to the the recording of the event.
0: Well, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to what you see as the key legal and policy challenges to improving cybersecurity at the moment? And and specifically, what's the role of, of standards in achieving those kinds of
2: goals? That's a great question. That's a great question. I, I, I want to start by talking about how wonderful NIST is, and not just because we're collaborating with them, but because it is the bedrock for how we build anything that we're doing from a regulatory or policy or in, in the case of federal government agencies, they are legally required to follow NIST standards and guidelines, right? So NIST is the basis and the bedrock for, for how to do things right and well and good practices. They are the standard developers, and they the, the process that they undergo to develop the standards that we're talking about, even in a fast-moving digital cybersecurity environment, is still robust and highly collaborative wow. with the practitioners in the space that are utilizing these standards and I cannot say enough about that role that they play and it speaks broadly to the role at at, at commerce but NIST is one of the most beloved agencies that the federal government has and in a lot of ways people don't the, the people don't understand that they are the the ones who are thinking deeply about what the what the actual standard for how to do cybersecurity well should look like. And they're the ones who are driving the conversation around um, voluntary standards. In in the in the absence of mandates and regulations and laws directing people to do certain things, NIST has promulgated a framework for doing cybersecurity well that is flexible and extensible across any type of industry group. And it's it's This tool came online in 2014 and has just proliferated into an international standard now. And I I think that it's important for us to recognize kind of the role that this plays there. Right now, we have industry-specific regulations. So the FTC has the safeguards rule. HHS promulgates their standards around medical devices. DOE... TSA is the one who is responsible for, as we've recently seen, pipeline security, broadly. That includes physical as well as digital security. So we don't have a clean, broad cybersecurity law in the books. What we as a country have been pushing as far as risk management is concerned is adoption of of this framework that allows folks to reference standards that are specific to their environments, their risks, and really create a program that can help them get to a point, because not everything is as is, is in need of a, a Cadillac um, cybersecurity plan. You don't necessarily need to have everything in highly classified air gap systems. Some, some things may be meant for the open domain. I mean, so you need to have that extensibility and flexibility.
1: I was just going to jump in and echo Ross's point there that NIST, NIST is fabulous and I think you know a bit of anecdata um, that, that proves the point is despite the the framework being entirely voluntary for the private sector the vast majority of the private sector around 30 percent of US companies use it out of choice and we've also seen seen evidence that Within Japan as well, the numbers at a similar level. You know, it's not a, the a US developed documents. There's no reason that Japanese companies should feel the need to use it, and yet it is very widely used over there as well, and you know amongst international organisations globally. Why do we need international standards? Because we live in a globalised economy, and we have very integrated supply chains. And the threats that we face are universal. You know, a, a cybersecurity threat coming out of North Korea looks the same if you're based in France as it does if you're based in the US. And so, in the cybersecurity space, it both makes sense in terms of how you tackle the challenge, but it also fits into the kind of ecosystem we have, which is one in which a company in Vietnam could well be running Microsoft, uh, you know, software to to power their you know internal systems or the the need to be able to pride those services in a truly international sense means that we need to have some kind of international reference point for what good cyber security looks like and also turn that around and say if you are a smaller economy the benefit of utilizing international standards is that your small companies can export if they're utilizing uh, international standards consistently they can sell into global markets despite being smaller companies and not having to deal with a patchwork of different approaches you know going back to the point we made earlier about governments being more focused on this international standards is exactly where they should be going and collaborating to identify what good cybersecurity looks like um, and and then implementing that at a national level in a way that enables um, consistency
3: thank you both and just to jump in a little bit more with our importance of standards at nist we are a big fan of industry-led standards and the international standards development process, which is very open and transparent and collaborative, which is reflective of the approach we take as we develop our standards and guidelines as well. And as you keep hearing about our cybersecurity framework, another important feature of it is that it's based on international standards. And we recognize that NIST as we were going through the process of developing it that There are already good existing international standards and guidelines and practices that are already working for managing cybersecurity risk. So we actually make reference to those in the framework, things like ISO 27001 on information security. There's an ISA standard 52443 that focuses on operational security. So we make reference to those specific standards and show how they can be used to achieve some of the outcomes and controls that are part of the framework. So if there are standards out there, people are already following using this framework, and that approach is complementary to that. And again, always recognize that more standards are being developed and things are being revised. So we have an evolving way to help map to and show how things like our cybersecurity framework can map to already existing and changing international standards, which we've seen to be a very, a very helpful approach.
0: I wonder if you could talk about a specific standard that has been, in your opinion, beneficial for the promotion of better cybersecurity cyber practices and sort of how does it work? Why is it beneficial? And what would happen in the absence of that standard?
1: Do you want to walk through the, the core of the framework, Amy? I think that's a decent example of, uh, of, of a standard that takes more of a process approach as an alternative to trying to prescribe specific technological outputs.
3: Thanks, yeah. If no one else minds, I can explain a little bit more of what the cybersecurity framework looks like, since it does reference those international standards that we've mentioned, and it is a very flexible approach, so it can be used across whether different types of critical infrastructure sectors or organizations of varying sizes. The part of the framework, which is the core that Alex mentioned, is comprised of five different functions, and these are meant to span the entire breadth of cybersecurity risk management, both from preventive stage before an incident occurs and in the aftermath, how you recover and how you respond to that incident. So these five functions in our framework are identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And I sometimes like to use the analogy of a protecting a house to help illustrate what we mean by these functions, which, again, through our process of working with stakeholders, these are five words that many agreed are common and accessible language and understood by people with varying levels of cybersecurity expertise. But then it is broken down further in the framework, but At a high level, everyone can understand what these five functions mean. With identify, going with the house analogy, I like to say that's when you take stock of what is critical and what's at risk. Just to keep it simple, I'll say looking at your windows and your doors, doing that risk analysis of, with your limited resources, what's something that's most important to protect? Like maybe you'll put more towards your first floor windows that are a little bit more easily accessible. With protect, those are the safeguards that you put in place to try to protect what you've identified putting locks, installing some security cameras. And then in terms of detect, that's asking people to monitor and be able to notice if there is something that is going awry. Like you would be monitoring those security cameras, but also aware of what is normal activity or the usual behavior and being able to identify when something is not normal. You would look and see, yes, this is okay if this delivery person is here and leaving a package, but if you see someone coming and rooting through your flower pot or under your front door mat for a spare key or some way to break in, you would know that's a little bit more unusual and action has to be taken. To respond with this analogy, that would be, you know, if you've noticed someone has broken in or there's an incident, you would be calling the police. You might be notifying your neighbor, seeing if someone has seen or heard anything. And then those steps to recover and try to either replace what is lost, take your lessons learned from what's happened so you can put in new different safeguards to try to prevent the same thing from happening. Maybe changing your locks, or seeing do you need some new things like maybe a dog that's going to bark and be something that's you know adding on to your detector toolkit. So, just going through those five different functions and having that flexibility to choose where are those areas that are most important for you to focus on based on your own unique risks, and that's an approach that we've seen to be very helpful as others have mentioned not just here in the U.S. but all over the world.
1: I think the reason that or where does that differ from an alternative approach? An alternative approach could try and prescribe for everybody what good cybersecurity looks like. So for instance, we could say encryption can be a very end-to-end encryption, can be a very helpful tool. And so we're going to require that every business that we consider critical infrastructure has to implement end-to-end encryption. One of the challenges that that can create is that oftentimes cybersecurity firms will not want traffic encrypted um, all the way through because they're able to use that for anomaly detection and and response. So you can do something which at a high level seems intuitive that there's this helpful tool. So we're just going to tell everybody that they should use it. But in actual fact, you miss the nuance of... Uh, The fact that that's actually detrimental in certain other ways. What the framework tries to do is take you through a process where you consider based upon your specific circumstances, what is important to you, how you can best protect it, how you're going to monitor anomalous or, or malicious activity. And then obviously how you're going to uh, respond to that and recover from it. And it's much more of a cooperative conversation rather than trying to, from a top-down level, identify things that everybody should do. Which inevitably, I sort of liken it to um, fitting out the wedding party by taking the median measurements of, of the people in there. You know, you might kind of get there, um, but it's it's not going to look great on the back end.
0: Well, so it sounds like this framework has been very successful in light of the success of this kind of standard setting policy move are there areas that you see as being kind of current weak spots or current problems that need addressing or where the standards need further development or further discussion
2: I will give you an example of, of how kind of how NISIS has addressed something in that space before where there was a need that they've addressed. So NIST is now on uh, version 1.1 of the framework. So one of the main differences there is in the first version, they did not have anything relating to supply chain risk. In 1.1, they added within the identify function a category around supply chain and several subcategories focused on good supply chain risk management practices so you know knowing your suppliers doing an assessment to make sure that they're doing what they need to do to make be cyber secure things things that are common sense but writing down in the framework so that you are thinking through, as you're addressing your own internal cybersecurity, hey, I have to be cognizant and aware of the people who are feeding into my system and my environment. So that was an example of how NIST saw a gap and added to it. Now, the framework process, uh, is it's, it's constantly evolving. NIST is constantly taking an input. And I think that that's the purpose of some of these discussions that we're having is to provide NIST the opportunity to say, hey, look, risk management is evolving. Cybersecurity is evolving. Digital environments are evolving. And it's a constant... Uh, process. So here's what we're seeing in the environment today. Maybe in the future, you're looking at adding additional subcategories around supply chain risk management. Maybe you're adding specific subcategories that get to certain needs that the the public sector community has, whether it's educational institutions or healthcare institutions. But the the cool part about the framework is it's usually pretty agnostic to those industry verticals, and it's it's flexible across it. So it's got to fit into industry agnostic and ubiquitous in order for them to make a change to the framework. That said, they also have developed a process where you do an overlay so you can take the framework and you can adapt it and drive even further down into industry-specific issues. There is a whole community of security practitioners that have formed these groups called information sharing and analysis centers, ISACs, and a lot of them, an example is the financial services or your banks, have gotten together and have produced taken the framework and then built on another level down. They've they've actually, instead of abstracting up, they've gone further down into the weeds and said, not only should you do these subcategories the way that they're written in the framework, but here's how you should do them if you're a bank, because here's the systems that you have, here's the interactions you have with your customers. And I think that that is the value of a tool like this is it's 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 going to continue to be updated at a certain level. And then it's giving it to the world to build uses use cases around uh, on an ongoing basis.
0: In closing, I wonder if you all could talk a little bit about the upcoming programming that you'll be making available, who can attend and participate and why they should make it a priority.
2: So it's open to anyone who who wants to. We have a, a website up and a link that we can send around. I think that part of the reason that we're reaching out to uh, tr- there's been traditional folks who have who have involved been involved in some of the standards development setting. but this is this is becoming like we said at the beginning of the podcast, right? This is something that is touching people in ways that are new that it, that's new to a lot of folks. So we're encouraging more and more practitioners in different environments who haven't thought about it to come in and involve themselves, listen, participate in all or part of some of these sessions, because w- what we're trying to do is build out discussion groups that allow folks who have not traditionally been sta- in standard development body work or deep into the policy landscape of cybersecurity to have attainable and to, to participate in attainable conversations around this issue, to really point out, hey, this is important, and here's how it relates to the work that I do as an educator. Here's, here's how it relates to the work that I do uh, in, in, a, in the legal field. So we would encourage folks to attend to, to listen, to ask questions, and then afterwards, after all of this is, is said and done, it'll be available for folks to, to listen to it in perpetuity, is to continue to engage with NIST in ways that are meaningful to the, the listeners.
0: Well, thank you so much, and I will make an effort to sign in myself because the programming sounds very interesting, and I have a passing interest in standard setting myself.
2: It's great. Well, you're welcome. We appreciate it.
1: Sounds great, and uh, thanks so much for having us on, Brian. Well,
3: thank you very much. <laughs>